Welcome, everybody, to the Responsible Business Podcast, brought to you by Think at London Business School. My name is Alex Edmonds. I'm a professor of finance and also academic director of the Centre for Corporate Governance. And I'm delighted to be joined by Sue Garrard, who was formerly an executive vice president at Unilever, and now is helping companies implement sustainability into reality as an independent consultant. And that's indeed what we're going to explore with Sue. Many companies talk about wanting to become more sustainable and more purposeful, but when the rubber hits the road and they have challenges with financial targets to hit, how can they actually make sure that they put sustainability into practice? So Sue, as I mentioned, you were previously uh, Executive Vice President of Sustainable Business Development and Communications at Unilever. But can you tell us about your career before you joined Unilever? Yeah, happy to. And by the way, thank you for inviting me to do this. So I've had a rather strange background. And at the time, to be honest, I kind of fell into a series of things which did not appear to be logical at the time. But now I find myself in my kind of late 50s thinking, thank heavens, luck took me in all those directions because it's kind of accumulated. So in essence, I started life with my father at the last minute, I mean three days before, saying he wasn't going to fund me to go to university. So that was a Mm. bit of a shock moment. And when I look back on it, I realise that that was one of those make or break moments in my life. And I could have just gone, well, you know, what hope is there? But I realise now that I'm quite a fighter. So I went off and got myself through the civil service exams. I worked in energy policy, no particular reason for that, but learnt an enormous amount. Worked on the privatisation of British Gas all those years ago. Tell Sid I was the client for the advertising campaign. This will be a good judge for anyone listening. If you're over 45, you'll probably remember it. Sadly, I'm not over 45, but I still remember it. Excellent. So So that just shows how famous the campaign was and incredibly effective. Then I went off having developed the advertising campaign, knowing nothing about advertising, which is the tradition of the civil service. Then I went into advertising. Then I moved into public affairs. Then I ended up moving into a very senior role in government, doing communication and sort of customer policy and customer insight at the Department of Work and Pensions all the way through the recession, which was both terrifying and exhilarating because, of course, really our job was to try and keep as many people in work and to try and get people back into work as quickly as we possibly could. So understanding what the levers are that drive that kind of change And then purely out of left field came uh, an invitation to go along and meet Paul Pullman because they were trying to create a global communications function and he wasn't very happy with the shortlist. And that happened literally the week after George Osborne stood up after the coalition government was elected, seems like a lifetime Mm -hmm. ago now, and said, by the way, austerity's here and it's going to start in the civil service and we're going to cut half million jobs. I don't know if you remember that one, but that was quite Mm. shocking. And it was pretty clear that they were going to start at the top and that I was very vulnerable. So those two things together meant that I thought, well, what have I got to lose from going to talk to Paul? And we got on like a house on fire. And literally within a couple of weeks, I got the job offer and, um, and joined. So you got this call from Paul Polman and you joined as the global head of communications. So could you tell me what what did that role involve? Yeah, so there was no communications function. So it was basically a building job. How do you create something where there are lots of strands but nothing of coherence? Secondly was how do you make clear what Unilever stands for now? because it didn't really have a coherent kind of image. It had bits of legacy, but not much more than that. And how do you partner with somebody who very quickly became a rock star CEO in his own right, very mission-driven? What did that mean for the company? What did it mean for the way in which he presented himself and what that meant for both Paul as an individual and Paul as a leader? Because, of course, Very quickly, the two became indivisible. So there were three big chunks to the activity, really. So one of your roles was to run the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, which is used as a great example for how businesses can not only be profitable, but also serve wider society. So what was it that led Unilever to to launch this new plan? Yeah, so I should just clarify, when I started 
I was only doing communications. And then after two years, Paul said, oh, well, it looks like you've cracked that comm stuff now. I really want to make sure that the USLP, as we abbreviated it to, for the reasons you'll understand, because it's a mouthful. But to answer your question, the origins of the USLP were actually they predated Paul. And Unilever had always had quite a strong sense of latent purpose. But over the years, there had been a war of attrition. And particularly when you become a listed company, as you will be incredibly aware, Mm. the issue of balancing short-term delivery against, frankly, anything else can become overwhelming. And indeed, that is what's happened. So there had been quite a lot of work to try and crystallise how the company should operate in the right kind of way. And then when Paul arrived, he already had all those foundations built for him. But he really pushed for the launch of the USLP because he simply believed that business in general, but particularly major businesses, first of all, would profit if they helped create the future that we all need. Secondly, that as a major company, actually you have an obligation to society. Uh, And he wanted to be very clear about what the role of Unilever was in serving society for it to act as a, a kind of a compass as much internally, to be honest, as externally. So it was values-driven, but it was also a long-term vision about what good business and what a resilient business would look like. Thanks, Sue. And I think there are many other companies which, like Unilever, are committed to delivering value for wider society. But did you get any pushback, for example, from investors who were arguing that maybe the main purpose of Unilever was to generate long-term returns? Because after all, investors are not nameless, faceless capitalists, but they are savers saving for their retirement or or pension funds, and it's important to generate long-term returns for them as well. Surprisingly not. And if you ask me why, then if I was honest, I would say that for quite a long time, really all our shareholders were interested in were whether or not we met quarterly consensus. So if it was seen to get in the way of that, then it would have become a problem, but it didn't. And against the backdrop where before Paul arrived, we'd have a great euphemism coming up, by the way, we'd had flat growth Mm. for 10 years (laughs) under the previous leaders. Mm. Paul had come in and had started to drive really good penetration-led sales growth and business growth almost immediately. And so shareholders who had been very patient saw Paul arrive and saw the company being revitalised and simply said, well, unless this is going to get in the way, we're really not that worried. Now, what they didn't ask, I think, is as interesting as what they did ask. And what they didn't ask was, can you show me how this is going to make the business stronger? So they really just were, I think they probably saw it at one level as pumped up philanthropy. I think it was only as the plan developed and they started to understand the degrees of difficulty of it that there started to be any real level of interrogation. And of course, quite frankly, we're talking 2011. You know, we were still really just coming out of the global recession. And nobody really had in the investor community, or more widely, frankly, very few people had the capability then or the interest or the expertise to critique what our plan said. And we live in a different world now, but, you know, 2011 is a long time ago. And you say that there was a lot of buy-in for sustainability, but how do we decide the limits to sustainability? So, yes, we want to invest in treating our employees better and reducing our carbon footprint, but there will be some point where commercial motives will will have to um, be important. So how do we know what's the optimal amount to to invest before the investment is going to be too negative to profit? Yeah, well, this is, of course, the killer question. So just to go back to frame my answer to you to this one, when I took the role on, It was very clear to me that, I mean, we had 72 measurable time-bound targets and we had to deliver them within a 10-year period, which felt very comfortable for the first couple of years. And then increasingly, we started to realise that if we weren't careful, we were going to take that attitude for a very long time and then we were going to get quite a nasty shock. So when I took the sustainability part of the role on, I really tried to assess what the state of the health of the plan was and what people critically within the business, thought about it. What became very, very clear was 
Nobody could articulate how it would make the business stronger. Nobody could reconcile it with their targets and their key objectives against which they were measured in terms of their job performance. And there wasn't even a high level marrying with the business plan. Now, in a world where you're remunerated on your business plan, you're judged on your business plan, the main thing anybody at work asks you about is your business plan. Guess what you're going to focus on? So actually, the fundamental thing that we did, the first thing that we did when I took the role was to say, we have to be very clear now what the business case is. There wasn't even a vocabulary for how you talked about that. So we created one and we just built a very simple framework that said it has to do one of four things. It has to drive growth, it being sustainability, drive growth, reduce cost, mitigate risk, or build trust. The latter of those, obviously, very hard to quantify, but you sure know it when you see it, and you can also see it when it's running out of the door. And then we looked retrospectively to say, if we look at all our activity, where at least a third of it can be traced clearly to some form of the plan, can we see that it sits in one of those four quadrants? And what we identified then was, first of all, that we'd already been doing a lot in the plan that was very helpful for the business, good, tick, you can codify that. Then you can go back to the USLP and you can say, how are the future targets that we've set in there help feed the areas that we now realise we can understand? We can place parts of the sustainability plan on top of the business plan, so they're married. But the big hole, not surprisingly, was growth. So this, I think, is very traditional where you see people are very good at understanding how you take cost out of the Mm -hmm. system through things like energy efficiency or you mitigate risk because of climate effects. Even then, more progressive businesses were starting to understand that. But growth was the really big area. And that's where the the, really the main focus for the remaining four years of my role there Mm -hmm. sat. I think this overlaying of, of growth is, is really important. And are you at liberty to talk about some initiatives that you might have done where they're purely a sustainability objective that you ended up turning down because you had to overlay these commercial objectives? Yeah. So we, as I say, we had 72 targets. Mm. I had the joy of being responsible for all of them, but having no power to execute okay. them, <laughs> which is a particularly uh, painful position to be in. But out of those 72, it was very obvious that there were some that really should just be business as usual. So I'm talking, for example, about the fact that in our foods business, we had a large number of products that had either saturated fat, high levels of sugar or high levels of salt in. Well, every food business should be on a journey to try to reduce those. But we were building this big thing around trying to reduce them. And there's masses more reporting than there needed to be. So that, you know, kind of the system had taken over. So we basically said, if there's something that is just good business practice, we are going to reduce the burden on the business in the way that we look at that. And we went back to a materiality matrix, which I think is absolutely central for yeah. any business. And it sits at the heart of where you decide you're going to invest and where you're going to downplay. And we simply said, okay, what matters most to the world and what matters most to Unilever? And we ended up with our top 10 issues. And that's really where we could see the business criticality, you know, and you didn't need a spreadsheet and a calculator to work that out. It was absolutely evident where the real energy needed to go with climate, with palm oil, with plastics, it's called packaged goods business, you know, that it fell out pretty simply after that. Thanks. And if I can just inject a little bit of academic research into the podcast, that there's a really nice paper looking at the importance of materiality. So what it does is takes companies that do well across all ESG dimensions. And surprisingly, what it finds is that those companies that perform well across the board, they don't beat the market in terms of long term returns. However, the companies that do well on the material ESG dimensions and actually scale back on the immaterial ones, those are the ones that beat the market because they have a sense of priority because there are real trade-offs in, in, in business and you can't be all things to all people absolutely what you've done at, you did at Unilever yeah. was to highlight that the really curious were, where you're moving the needle so going back to those the 72 targets so, so one of the big challenges for running a sustainable business is how to measure your impact so on the one hand it, it's great that you have targets but on the other hand it's one of the challenges that some of the true dimensions of sustainability aren't quantifiable for example you could have targets on say worker wages and hours 
but how do you measure meaningful work and skills development? And if there's too much of a focus on targets, might it lead to managers managing to those targets rather than those other dimensions? Absolutely. So there's a phrase that I use a lot, which is hit the target, miss the point. Uh, (laughs) And it's exactly that problem. So in the early days, for example, when we had our big sustainably sourced palm oil target, we found that our supply chain guys, who are hugely target-driven, fell into exactly that trap. And so what we found we had to do very regularly was to go back. In fact, one of my permanent secretaries when I worked in government used this phrase a lot, and I've stolen it with pride, which is that we had to be clear what problem we were trying to fix. And what that takes you to is something that's outcome-based, not target-based. And that's really the critical point, I think, is if you can think about what outcome are you trying to achieve and what impact will you measure, then you give yourself a framing that avoids some of the perverse issues around targets. And I think the crucial thing is that if you're looking at environmental targets around energy, water and waste, of course, they're completely measurable and there are methodologies. So I I don't believe there should be any excuse for any organisation on the environmental side not being very concrete and also reporting very regularly so that you can actually demonstrate what impact you're having. And there's another critical point about environmental targets, which is the extent to which you link them overtly with your sales and your turnover. Because whether you're measuring something in relative or absolute terms, I'm getting a bit technical now, but it's pretty critical because if you're genuinely trying to decouple your environmental impact from your growth, then you have to have a target that demonstrates that that's what you're doing. It's no good to talk about per unit of sales, for example, because if you're looking at a big spike in uh, sales, and many businesses wish they were, then obviously you're not really reducing your, your absolute impact much, much more difficult when you look at the social side. So we really wrestled with this. Is it useful if I give you an example? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So we had said that we wanted to improve the livelihoods of certain groups upstream in our supply chain. Why? Because we recognised that there we could use our scale as a force for good, a huge buyer um, in a lot of agricultural rules, for example. And one of the groups that are living below the poverty line are smallholder farmers. And we reckoned that in our extended supply chain, we were probably responsible for buying the crops of over a million of those people. And many of them were earning less than a dollar a day. They were living in food poverty, ironically. They didn't understand how to grow to a level where they could have a consistent supply. So they weren't plugged in consistently to a supply chain. And we coined a a target that said that we wanted to improve the livelihoods of a certain number of these smallholder farmers. Well, then we started to try and work out what improving their livelihoods meant. We went round in circles. We spoke to most of the best people that we could get our hands on, including in a lot of NGOs. We talked to the World Health Organization. We talked to the UN. We talked to the World Resources Institute. We talked to WEF to say, what would you think was a material, measurable improvement in livelihoods? And we got absolutely no common agreement at all. So in the end, we just said, we're going to assume that if we can lift the value of what that smallholder farmer earns by over double, we're going to regard that as material. And we simply, when we reported every year, we said... This is our definition. We can't get a definition of any coherence anywhere else. But it probably took us about nine months to do the work to conclude that there was no unanimity on that. So that's just one tiny example, and and we dealt with scores of those. So it's very time-consuming as well. And given this difficulty and given the, the lack of unanimity, do you think a CEO's pay should be tied to sustainability targets? So this is something that Klaus Schwab of the World yeah. Economic Forum has said, and you and I had this interesting um, d- discussion on, on Twitter, on, on LinkedIn about it, is that on the one hand, you, you think, well, we need to make the executive care about this by putting um, some targets and linking pay to it. But on the other hand, one might think, well, let's just measure and report on this exactly as you did for the environment, but pay the CEO according to long-term stock price, which is indeed what 
Pullman's uh, pay is, is linked to and let him or her just choose sort of how to manage the quantitative versus qualitative dimension. So how do you yeah. see that trade-off? Well, I think if we weren't in such a rush to get something done around climate, I would be more inclined to let the organic process that you describe work its way through. I think the problem is we just don't have time now. So if you look just yesterday, you know, I come here, frankly, in a gloom of depression after COP25 Mm -hmm. and the phenomenal, you know, forces that drive status quo from, you know, the fossil fuel industries and others amongst some of the leading governments. There is a an interdependency on government in a lot of areas to create a level playing field. But I think as much as possible, we need mechanisms now that will drive business leaders at a very material level to start to think and own for themselves what the business case is for acting on climate. Mm. Why do I think that? Partly because of the speed at which we need to move, but also partly because the passivity of big business is likely to lead to business failure. If I think about how long it took us to build the muscle internally, the capability to think about how we operated a shadow carbon price, for example, which we did at Unilever, or to do any of the other things that we tried to do, shifting the whole of the palm oil market, they're staggeringly difficult. Mm. There's no precedent that you can fall back on and it takes time to learn it. So if the mass of business leaders are saying, well, if it's that important, I'll be required to do it, it will be regulated, the PRA will require it, whatever it is. By the time that happens, that business will be very on the back foot and very unlikely to succeed because of the scale of the shift. And if it's certainly if it's carbon tax, just the amount of money that's going to land taken out of their bottom line. So I think we need as many accelerator mechanisms as possible mm. to get business leaders really shifting from what I see as a schizophrenic way they operate at the moment. You talk to the average CEO and they will say, God, my kids beat me up about this climate stuff, something rotten. There's not a single CEO that I've met in the last couple of years that doesn't say that. And yet they hold this completely contrary view when they get into the office, which is that's not going to affect my business really very much for quite a long time. I'll carry on dealing with it in the way that I always have. So we need catalysts for change. I, and I think nearly all of our listeners, will agree on the criticality of addressing climate change. But even here, it seems that there are important trade-offs. So about a year ago, we welcomed Michael Lewis, the E.ON UK CEO, to London Business School. And he talked about the challenges he faces when he's moving towards green energy. And listeners who are interested can look up an interview on our website of Tom Gosling, a executive fellow here at LBS, discussing these challenges with, with Michael Lewis. And one thing he talked about was, even though he's absolutely committed towards moving towards green energy, he can't do this too quickly because if you were to shut down some coal-fired power stations, you're going to make a lot of people out of work. So is there a danger that if we put too strong sustainability targets, that CEOs will focus too much on that and uh, not the effects on wider society, such as employees? Yeah. So you've come to the nub of why this concept that's dubbed the Green New Deal is so critical. And and I said earlier that there is an interdependency with government. And for me, that's the uber interdependency. Mm. Because otherwise, the risk is, and you see it all the time, the trade-offs between environmental and social benefits. But what I would say is twofold. First of all, you know, part of the role of business is in creating employment. But I think it's an unreasonable burden to place that on an individual business. I think what you have to look at is the macro picture. And you have to understand where you can incentivize growth in a sector and make sure you're providing both at a regionality and a skills level the ability for people to be re-employed. You know, that is a clap. Well, my old days at DWP, that's exactly what we did. You know, and that's very positive. That's a market stimulant, but it's not controlling the market because I believe in in a free market. I think the other critical point is I always segment in this kind of conversation, I segment businesses into three types. The first is very crudely, the types of businesses that have caused the problem. So very simply, they are, in fact, the fossil fuel businesses and a few at the margins. There's some very heavy industry, obviously, linked to that. And, you know, if Greta were sitting here, 
she would say, look, it's very simple. We need to keep that stuff in the ground, you know, and simplistic yeah, argument. Yeah. But basically she's right. The sooner the better. At the other end, there are the businesses that are going to innovate with radical technologies that will enable us to maintain our current standard of living in some parts of the world and indeed increase it in others, but genuinely separating out the impact of standard of living with environmental impact. They're very exciting and they are, for me, where huge amounts of growth and job opportunities will come. Then the third segment are the massive companies, Unilever being just one, that basically provide us with all the things that we're accustomed to that give us the the standard of living, the health, the hygiene, the mobility and so on and so forth that have massively improved the way that we live and improved life uh, expectancy, etc. And there the challenge is to separate our activity from impact. And so if I go back to what the man from E.ON was saying, for me, that's a very purist argument about the challenge that the fossil fuel industries face. And quite honestly, I think they're much bigger challenge than employment is it's very hard to see how they're going to build the kind of equity strength that investors will find attractive in moving to being an energy company compared to what they've got now. That's mm. going to take a, a huge amount of skill. Uh, in fact, I'm not even sure it's achievable. But if they haven't got the answer now, it's worrying if you look at, uh, at how that market's going to evolve. So I, I think employment is probably the most critical thing and skills, but I just don't think you can place that responsibility on an individual organisation. I see, yeah. So we, we've already talked about a, a number of the real challenges that businesses face in implementing sustainability. So trade-offs, the difficulty in measuring some social outcomes. But a, another challenge might be getting buy-in from the rest of the organisation. So when I first met you, Sue, this was at a dinner hosted by the Blueprint for Better Business, where you talked about the clay, yeah. which is the level of senior management just a little bit below the C-suite. And you described them um, blocking purpose, a little like clay blocks water flow. So what what is the origins of, of the blockage and, and what did you do at Unilever to try to address this? Yeah. The problem really was that when we started off, as I said, it felt to a lot of people like the plan was just what you'd expect Unilever to do because we were jolly good chaps. Mm-hmm. And yes, it was gender specific, by the way. (laughs) But what it wasn't was a cunning ruse to grow the business, right? So I go back to my basic point. How are all the systems and signals in the business designed to tell people what direction to point in? It's all very aligned towards short-term growth and margin delivery. Unless somebody could come along and explain how a target on salt or sugar or a target on palm oil or a target on smallholder farmers actually aligned with and helped them be more successful in their role, most people in the company simply were not going to take the time to work that out. Mm. And critically, when you're at a junior level in a major organisation like that, you know, 170,000 employees odd, very few of them have a position to make a a material decision that will make a big impact on short-term delivery of a target. But you get to that middle manager level and that's critically their role. So that's just how the matrix works. And so there were these people who on the one hand would say, I'm very proud I work for Unilever because it's got this marvellous plan. But when you ask them how it was going to help them in their day job, at best they would look confused and some would feel obviously really very uncomfortable and a bit threatened because that wasn't clear to them at all. In fact, a lot of people simply didn't believe that the USLP was a servant of their objectives. So guess what they did? They did that classic Gandhi-esque passive resistance. And when they came under pressure, they got really quite upset. And of course, that's actually quite reasonable. Because if the organisation tells them that they want them to behave a certain way and you don't align objectives and you don't empower people and you don't give them the capability and you don't explain to them how the jigsaw puzzle fits together, what do you expect? So more junior people come in with a sense of passion and say, well, I'm expecting this organisation to be aligned with what I see externally. But the people in that middle layer are simply saying, well, I don't like change. I've got a lot of responsibility. I can't make this all fit together. So actually, the onus genuinely was on the leaders 
of the organisation, and this was really the critical role that I played, or one of them, to actually put that jigsaw puzzle together. Mm. Now, what was powerful was that as soon as we did, everybody leant forward and went, oh, wow, now I see. Now I can marry my personal values from outside work with what I know to be true about Unilever and what it's asking of me individually. And when those points came together, that's when you really unleash the power of that middle management layer. So what I'm hearing is that it's essential for a company trying to embed sustainability to to show how the sustainability targets can actually affect the, the success of the core business yes. and the, the uh, targets that middle management are um, are held accountable to. Is there anything beyond that which which you thought was also critical for the success of embedding this throughout Unilever's culture? Yeah. So I would say the focus shifted quite once we were clear on the business case. Yeah. Targets were just enablers. So, and if the target turned out to be wrong or out of date or if the, if the issue shifted, mm. then I was very open publicly and internally about the fact that we would shift the target. So we moved away from this kind of target for its own sake right. focus. That's absolutely critical. Yeah. They can be very damaging targets. If you set up an expectation that they should be treated like a, you know, a, a turnover target mm. and you get the kind of slavish following of it, it's very dangerous. So I think that was really one critical part of it. But actually... The thing that we did as we were starting to design the successor to the USLP, so the successor expires next year, and we gave ourselves two and a half years to design what will, whatever will get launched next year. And we did it through a major process of consultation, critically inside as well as outside. So outside, we went to the top 250 leading experts, Christiana Figueres, pretty much anybody you can think of, a rock star list. And we had a tightly controlled set of questions. And indeed, that process was run by leaders all around the business. We trained them in how to run the questionnaire. They recorded every single one. We had a a standard uh, list of areas that we covered and then some scope for flexibility. And we then created a youth team, all out of volunteers. We had 40 people from around the business. People were fighting to get on it. It was amazing. And we asked them to repeat the same process within the company. And we had the ability for people, I mean, a lot of people in our factories, for example, who are included in this can't read or write. And so we had a mechanism to reach out to them. And so we ended up inviting all 170,000 employees using exactly the same framework questionnaire as we'd used with our external experts. We got over 40,000 replies the quality of the replies was just fabulous and very aligned with what we'd been hearing externally about what our future priorities were going to be or should be and some of the things that people would do if they were the CEO, classic question. And what that meant was that we could go back when we did the first internal launch of the high-level direction of travel to say, this is your plan, you helped write it. You know, you can see your fingerprints all over this. And that sense of devolved leadership, in effect, that we had created, I think is one of the most powerful things Mm. that you can do in an organisation. Yes, we often think about purpose being something dreamed up by the C-suite and the people down below just execute the orders from the above. But you're talking about the importance of empowerment and and allowing the the people closest to the action to actually define targets and and implement it how they see best. Yeah, and recognising, you know, Almost all of the answers lie in the business. And we're so used to running a big organisation top down. Mm. And we lose so much from that. We lose energy. We lose ideas. We lose speed. We lose most of the things that actually make you brilliantly competitive when you start off when you're little. Mm. And it's such an irony. But it's the hardest thing to do is to let go when you're at the top. So to be honest... When I designed this process that I've just described to you of crowdsourcing the, the feedback that I felt we needed, I didn't ask permission from anybody mm. in the organisation to do it that way. I didn't go to Paul. I didn't say, Paul, how should we design the next plan? I simply went off and did it. Mm. And I thought, you know, I'm senior enough now to be able to just go out and operate on the basis that I'm going to ask for forgiveness, not permission. And if the quality of my instinct is right Mm. and the quality of what you get back is good enough, then maybe that starts to create 
a virtuous circle of change in the way that other senior leaders will operate. And obviously I'm not there now, so I don't know how much of that has followed through, but it was very powerful. Yeah, no, I like this very much. Um, and let's now be on, move beyond Unilever. So I alluded to the Blueprint for Better Business. So I understand that you're one of the co-founders of this, Sue. So could you explain what that organisation does and, and why what motivated you to set this up? Well, again, coming out of, or really I would say, you know, still emotionally certainly the nation feeling like it was in global recession mode. And you'll remember the extraordinary criticisms around the conduct of major banks you know, almost all justified, I would say. And the Edelman Trust Barometer, which captures that data, showing the colossal decline in trust between citizens and, frankly, most institutions. But banks were kind of very much at the head of that queue there. Catalyzed by that, there were a few very senior level discussions amongst business and banking leaders. And this led to an idea that, most CEOs don't set off when they finally climb that greasy pole of 35 years just to maximise short-term return for shareholders and to stay just the right side of the regulatory line, mm. courtesy of their general counsel, that actually they want to create a business that has more meaning and purpose, but that actually it was very difficult to know how to do that as a CEO. And what could we do that didn't just become another piece of regulation and another burden on business and more red tape and all the things that, frankly, hadn't really worked in the first place mm. and certainly hadn't prevented the things that led to the, the global financial crash, but that might provide some kind of catalytic effect and some kind of support mechanism, mm. if you like, for CEOs who wanted to do the right thing, to use a cliché. And so we had several sponsors at CEO level, like Vittorio Colau, for example, and obviously Paul. We had some religious leaders as well. And we had a few chairs, so Mike Grake, when he was still at BT, as an example, who, through a series of conversations, really felt very strongly that there was a fertile territory there, but that they didn't quite know how to operationalise it. And so... Frankly, a group of us just got together and said, well, shall we see what we can develop? Yeah. And out of that, we had Matthew Taylor, we had a whole massive variety of people, Save the Children, CEO. So a really diverse group of people is, is really my point, who we road tested this idea on. And then the blueprint was born and it was based on Catholic social teaching, uh, which talks about the human state of wanting to live a life with meaning and recognising that a company is really a collective of individuals who are all motivated in that way and that there was a fundamental tension between that and the perceived purpose of a business and particularly the question under the Companies Act, one, Section 172, mm. about whether what shareholder primacy really meant. Right and the ability of a CEO to operate in the long-term best interests of the company, which I still believe is absolutely not what that section means. If you want to, you can come on and groom me on that in a minute. But the point being that most CEOs felt it, and therefore it was true, because perception is reality. So really, in essence, what Blueprint does now, we formed it, we managed to get backing for it so that it's completely financially independent. Mm -hmm. So you're not another consultancy going to businesses to say, can we help you? And by the way, can we, can we earn some money out of that? Who have now worked with a large number of CEOs through fairly informal means to get them to really think about what a purpose-led business looks like, what the power of that is, how you turn it into reality in an organisation, how you anchor it into the organisation and embed it, and how you measure impact. And it's been running now, well, we, we started talking about it in 2012, mm. and it's just gradually built momentum. So it's very satisfying. Yeah, and it's really inspiring that there's so many other companies which are trying to really put sustainability into practice and move it beyond a mission statement. But again, let's go to some of the challenges, because at the start, when we talked about Paul Pullman and Unilever, you mentioned there wasn't so much of a challenge with him winning investors over because Unilever had had this history of serving wider society and because Paul was already delivering financially and reversing the flat growth that you refer to. But what if you're the CEO of an organisation which does still have these challenges where you're not yet delivering financially? 
financially and, and investors are asking you to focus on the finance first and then get the purpose right later. Yeah. How would you address that and, and get buy, buy-in? Well, I think it comes back to really, in effect, sustainability should be a fundamental part of your business strategy. Mm. So now I'm operating on my own. What I say to CEOs is what I will help them with is business strategy through a sustainability lens. And the more you take a binary approach, the more difficult it becomes. So if I'm looking at any kind of business, whether it's in fashion, whether it's in household goods, whatever it's in really, the question really is, how are you going to grow? How are you going to decouple that from your environmental impact? Because by the way, you're going to be obliged to do that and it will cost you Mm. a lot of money. Can one be the servant to the other? You know, can you use the art of judo and and look at where you've got a, a weakness perhaps in your sustainability performance at the moment that if you lent into could give you a really significant point of difference? And, you know, probably the most significant thing, certainly the thing of which I'm most proud at Unilever, I talked at the beginning about my bizarre career journey. Yeah. Well, this exemplifies why it was so fortunate because it struck me that, Nobody in marketing in Unilever really understood how USLP would grow their brands. And so we spent two years working that out in great depth. And then we worked with individual brand owners of our very big brands, huge ones like Dove, to say, how do we actually impose a level of sustainability or insert a level is probably a better word of sustainability into the brand that can be leveraged, that consumers care about? And by the end of last year, the brands for which we had done that were growing 67% faster Mm. than the rest of the Mm. portfolio. So we were very methodical about that. We identified what the consumer case was, which, of course, is the same thing as the business case in a consumer goods company. We looked at how we operationalized that. We tested it with some uh, two or three key brands, and then we scaled it when we knew where the pitfalls were and how we made it work and how we maximised the impact of that. And, of course, again, that creates a fantastic flywheel effect within a business, and it becomes a growth driver that everybody in the organisation leans into because they can see how it makes them stronger. So I think you know, the single most significant thing I would say that I can do now to help businesses is to stop them thinking, oh, God, there's another thing. We've got the sustainability stuff we've got to sort out. You know, don't people understand it's hard enough to make a profit as it is? And you can feel them very understandably going, why doesn't this just go away for a bit because my life is too hard? And actually, when you can get to the point where you can say, just imagine if this becomes a growth driver and you can start to explain how you build and identify where that opportunity might sit... And you recognise that most, certainly if you're a consumer-facing organisation, most consumers now are desperate to be able to be more responsible consumers. Mm -hmm. So if you can actually find a genuine, you can't make this artificially, but if you can find the genuine point where the moral case meets the business case, and that's a consumer motivator, you found gold. Mm -hmm. And so when people talk about how grim it's all going to be, You know, I think it's important not to generalise, either at the level of what's happening in nature or what the implications for business are, because we need growth to provide the fuel to invest in the future. And it's perfectly possible, I believe, for a lot of businesses to actually do very well through this by doing the right thing. And that's the critical point. It cannot be this binary thinking anymore. And in your last response, you alluded to what you're doing now. So indeed, about a year ago, you started this new chapter. So could you tell us about what you're doing now? Yeah, well, it's pretty terrifying when you've been on PAYE for 35 (laughs) years. And then you find that you're not quite old enough to retire, definitely not old enough to retire. And so several people said to me, why don't you just hold your breath or hold your nerve before going back into a kind of a classic big corporate job again? And see if the world needs you to help them do the sorts of things that I had learned to do at Unilever. And you've got to remember, I'm not a sustainability expert. You know, you asked me at the beginning what my career path was, Mm. and the word sustainability didn't really pop up once. But I learned an enormous amount at Unilever, and I did it at the most senior level. And actually what I realised is that's part of my value. 
So I don't come to you with a pointy hat on saying I'm an expert in sustainability. Let me tell you the 49 things that's wrong with the way you've measured a carbon footprint. What I say is, what's the essence of this organisation? How do we make it more successful? That's always about both mitigating risk and finding opportunities. Where do you find the point of alignment? What are the things that you need to understand about how you embed this? How do you build capability in the company? Where's the governance? What do you go public on? How do you avoid shooting yourself in the foot? And really what I realised was, once I'd had the sort of the time to breathe after I'd left Unilever, was that there's very few people around that can help the massive growing number of businesses who are waking up to this and saying, help, I know I need to take it seriously, but I really don't know how to do it. And that you can go to a big traditional organisation and they will have consultants uh, that will have learnt about this, but none of them will have done what I've done. And so I just decided to take a risk. And frankly, I sort of felt like I had to live my own principles Mm. at some level. And so now I help companies accelerate on their path, or indeed some of them start on the path towards how they embed sustainability in their business strategy. And so there's a business which wants to leverage off your experience in in implementing sustainability. How do they get in touch with you? Well, they probably phone you, Alex, and ask for my email address. (laughs) So I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter. Very easy to get hold of me. What I would say is I'll help anybody who's serious I have actually turned a couple of organisations down. Mm. And I think as I get older, I realise the truth that you can only spend your hour once. Mm. And, you know, I hope to spend, I don't know how long it will be, 5, 10, 15 years, I honestly don't know. But those hours that I've got left doing this, really I'm interested in one thing, which is having the maximum impact and finding that sweet spot for a company where they're not in that binary thinking and we're and we're helping this planet a bit. And we've talked about some essential levers to get companies to really successfully put this into practice, such as highlighting the business case, not just implementing it top down, but allowing it to, to bubble up from the bottom. What do you see in, in your work with the companies that you're, you're working with now, the, the main things that companies get wrong when they try to implement purpose? Yes. Well, when they think about purpose... It often is owned by the wrong part of the organisation to start with. And it has to be owned by the whole of the executive. And they have to recognise right from the start that it's a very profound thing. So a good purpose means that you will take different decisions. It means you will make different choices. It's a very practical tool to how you run your organisation. And... uh, Very few companies understand that when they start. And as they embark on it, as they realise that, it becomes very difficult. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a big misunderstanding about purpose being something, a slogan that you can paint on. Mm -hmm. Actually, it sits deeply at the heart of what the organisation exists to do. And they're also very difficult to articulate well. And it worries me. I mean, I spent a lot of my career in communications, but it worries me that it's seen as the job of a branding or a communications agency because that's starting at the wrong end of the telescope. Then once you get to that, and if you've got the right leadership and the clarity of view about the connection point between society and your organisation and you can articulate it well, that in itself is not enough to be a discriminator and a driver of choices and decisions. And so what you need is you need a plan that sits below that. And that's where I think increasingly the kind of the centre of gravity should sit for the sustainability plan, but only if it can be clearly articulated in terms of how it links with or is a servant and enabler to the business plan. But it's only when you've got that that people go, oh, okay, so that slogan, this is how I interpret it in this context. When you do that, it's very powerful. So I talked about distributed leadership earlier on. That's a critical enabler of it Mm. because then even if you're four or five layers down the organisation from the CEO, if there's a sharpness of plan about how you live your purpose, then you know exactly what's expected of you. And so that is very empowering. It's also a huge relief to the CEO because he or she knows that somebody in a very distant part of the organisation is very clear about what's expected of them in certain circumstances. 
And maybe that would be a good point to, to end on because you, you started by talking about how, how you joined Unilever at a senior level. And um, what if you are a, a junior employee and that company does not act according to a distributed leader model where you don't feel that you have much empowerment, but you want to make um, your, your career purposeful one and make sure that the company serves wider society? What could you do in a large hierarchical organisation to, to make this real in, in the small field that you're operating in? Yeah, I think there are two options. And I do both of these sequentially in this order. Mm. The first is to identify other people that feel like you and to create a voice within the organisation and to be your mini extinction rebellion almost within that company in a constructive way. So enable the the senior leadership to feel the enormous energy Mm. and appetite for change. But the critical success factor in that is that you're very clear about what you think the organisation needs to change to. Any senior leader confronted with, we don't like this, is likely to reject it. Any senior leader confronted by, we think that the future of this organisation lies in this path and we believe that's going to be critical for a success, is much more likely to listen. That's option one. If that fails, my advice unequivocally is to leave that company. Again, we only live our lives once. I don't believe in reincarnation. I think a fundamental issue, and I saw this so deeply at work and pensions, where simply in order to get and keep a job, people would leave a huge part of themselves at the front door of that organisation every day. And it's a very destructive way to live your life. And we live in extraordinary times now as we are seeing the first very physical manifestations of climate, biodiversity and a whole range of other things, the plastics pollution, for example. And people are feeling deeply that they want to connect what they're doing in their working lives with trying to deal with and tackle some of those issues. And seriously, if you can't do that in a way that connects you deeply at work, then why are you there? So I think we all need to feel, and that's what I've done really, is just to kind of try and find my courage to make the right kind of impact on the world. And it's the best way to live your life. The Japanese philosophy of Ikigai, which sums that up, you look at the, it's a wonderful little book, and the stories that are told about the life expectancy of people who genuinely live that philosophy Mm are just fantastic. So I commend it to everybody. I've discovered it in my late 50s, but no turning back now. Well, thanks so much. So it's been a real treat to spend this this time with you. And so the very first time I, I met you, as I mentioned, what really struck me is that you talked about purpose in such a concrete way. This is a topic which was is often seen to be nebulous and fluffy, but you, you made it real. And it's really a, a, a huge value that we were able to discuss the challenges that you face and overcome in Unilever, and you're helping other companies overcome right now. So thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Responsible Business Podcast from Think at London Business School. To discover more, please visit london.edu slash think.